Welcome to episode 11 of the podcast, The 33. In this episode, we will discuss Stephen, one of the 33 individuals that interviewed for Dr. Shukla's book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. Now, Dr. Rashi Shukla is a professor of criminal justice here at the University of Central Oklahoma and the author of the book that we're discussing. And I'm Dr. David Nelson, a professor of mass communication here at UCO. Oh, there's someone right there. There's someone right there. Call the police! Open the door! Get the dog. Just get it open. 75,000 fentanyl pills, 23 pounds of meth, and 2.5 pounds of cocaine. Total value of drugs seized, $3,345,000. But before we go into our discussion about Stephen, Dr. Shukla, we've had some large meth and fentanyl bust in the state and nationally. Here's a little bit what uh, Sheriff Tommy Johnson III had to say about the most recent bust in Oklahoma County. The high volume of fentanyl that we're seeing going around, um, at least coming through Oklahoma City, is it's coming at a rate that I, you know, I can't believe and I can't, I don't think I've ever seen. There's, of course, been other recent, right, examples right. of some meth bust. What do you have? Well, if you, you know, we're talking more about methamphetamine and fentanyl because we're seeing a lot more overdoses with fentanyl um, than we have previously. With regard to meth at first, in April of 2022, there was a $35.2 million meth seizure, and they were they pulled over a big rig that was hauling strawberry puree. A truck driver transporting strawberries from Mexico to the U.S. was caught by U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers. And it was 1,761 pounds. Mm. Um, there's also a story in the news when it comes to meth, something that, you know, is mentioned in the book, but that often gets overlooked about a contaminated house. Just three weeks after we moved in, all three of our kids became sick. They started to feel sick, too. Problems breathing and other respiratory issues. The Maselli's immediately got their home tested for drug residue, and the results came back positive for meth. It's brought us both to tears at times, being in the house. And, you know, we talk about toxic places related to the meth cooking, and here we are in 2022, and we still see homes that are contaminated by meth cooking that are getting remediated. Um, when it comes to fentanyl, According to the DEA, in the past, they used to have seizures that would just be a few hundred pills. They then went to thousands of pills, and now they have seizures as high as 10,000 pills. And according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, in the last year, they had over 1,066% increase in fentanyl seizures, and that was just in South Texas in eight ports there. Mm. Um, and in those ports, they had over 588 pounds of fentanyl being seized. And so it is a huge issue in terms of the supply of drugs that are coming into not only the United States, but also Oklahoma. And you mentioned an earlier podcast, the corridor of I-35 and I-44, right. Highway 44, are passages that the most dealers, distributors, and others will take Right. to deliver their drugs. Right. We're at the corner of a network um, that basically connects the West Coast to the East Coast and, you know, the North to the South. And so we are at a crossroads when it comes to uh, drug trafficking across the United States. And in this particular article, too, they've also mentioned that it may possibly, uh, this particular drug seizure would probably go back to somewhere in Mexico, to the cartel. And uh, this woman, she was pulled over after driving erratically on I-35, 
Right. And uh, they estimated the bus to be about 3.3 million. Your first one, you mentioned the estimated bust is 30 $5.2 million on the streets. Right. And, you know, if you talk to somebody who's involved, and I, Mark Woodward might have mentioned this in a previous, when we talked to him in a previous episode, but they estimate that they're only getting about 10% of what's coming in. Mm. So if we're seeing seizures of 10,000 pills or, you know, $30 million worth of, of drug value, street drug value, that means how much more is actually coming in. And one of the other pieces of this story that is starting to change, you know, with the change in the drug problem is that, you know, Afghanistan, which, you know, we recently departed from, was historically a, a ground a ground zero, basically, for opium and for the opiate problem. And now methamphetamine is becoming a huge issue. Afghanistan already produces the vast majority of the world's heroin. Now it's emerging as a major producer of crystal meth another dangerously addictive illegal drug. Um, they actually are a major supplier of ephedra, which they call Oman or Oman, and it grows wild there and it's filling a, a gap in jobs. And, you know, so that's something on our radar screen now is how, how that's going to add to what we're getting from Mexico when it comes to methamphetamine. Well, Sheriff Johnson goes in, in this particular article saying fentanyl pandemic we really need to watch out for this right. because it is taking the world by storm, he said. And uh, we have here specifically in the College of um, Mass Communication, we've had a, um, a student who was lost to an opiate uh, addiction. Right. And I actually, um, one of my friends mentioned another funeral that they went to of a 29 year old man. So just in our tiny little network, you know, in the past few weeks, there's a 32 year old student and a 29 year old. I don't know if he was a current or former student at UCO, but that both, you know, took fentanyl and died from it. And that's why we have you know, special agent Wilson from the DEA coming to our classes to try to educate students. So these aren't people that, you know, have a lifelong addiction and they, they may have the addiction, but what kills them in the end is this one pill that they take one time versus someone who has like 30 years of addiction that just cumulatively takes a toll on them. Well, that's the, the latest, of course, what we've had as far as fentanyl and uh, meth bust here in the state. Uh, it is one of the leading drugs in overdoses, and including alongside meth, right. uh, after autopsies are conducted. Right. And the other thing that I saw just recently, and I'd never heard of this before, so it just kind of, I don't know how good of a job they did with it, but apparently May 10th was the very first National Fentanyl Awareness Day, and mm. I didn't even know about it. And there's a website that you can find that basically you can go to and you can order naloxone kits. So they're basically saying if you have opiates in your home, go ahead and place an order for these naloxone kits so that way if someone does overdose, you can then administer naloxone and try to save their life. Mentally and physically, I was in love with the effect. It was awesome, the best thing I've ever done in my life. So we will move now into talking about Stephen. Dr. Shukla, Stephen uh, loved and wanted meth, according to uh, your writings in your book. The first introduction of Stephen was in chapter three, Loving Meth. And when you met him, he was 24 years old a former lower-level dealer. Stephen is somewhat of an anomaly, as you said, amongst the people that you interview. But what can you tell us about your interview with him? 
He was the uh, second, I believe, right? Yes. Of the 33 people you interviewed. Uh, what can you tell us about Stephen? So keep in mind that when you're doing the second interview, you still don't know a lot. So had Stephen come into the picture, you know, like as my 20th or 30th interview, maybe kind of the questions I would have asked him might have played out differently. But I, again, didn't know much about meth, didn't know much about cooking, really had no understanding of it. Um, It was interesting because one of my research assistants at the time went with me to the interview. We met Stephen at a bar that's between where we are now and and the northwest side of the city. And he was unique because he sat at the bar and he drank beer the entire interview. No one else in my project had ever done that. And, you know, that wasn't anything, you know, major in and of itself. But, you know, he... His interview stands out, and I was actually even talking to a a research assistant who's using this data for her thesis right now. I was talking to her last night, and every single person who reads his interview is like, he's different. And he was different in that some of what he said, you know, couldn't necessarily be validated by what other people said, although it was probably true to his own recollection and lived experience. Um, He didn't have details about some parts of what he talked about. He talked about, you know, making dope, which he differentiated from meth, but using a plant, but then he couldn't really mention any chemicals. And, you know, then he, he just basically said some things that were different. So I don't know if he hadn't hit rock bottom yet, but he said that he would use again, even though he calls it a love and an addiction at some points, he says, no, it was just more of a want, but he definitely wasn't the kind of person who said, I'm never going to use meth again. He was like, if I had more time, I might use it again. wasn't an addiction at all. It was a want. Well, Stephen was a low-level dealer, and he said he made dope, as you were sharing just a minute ago. And can you tell us a little bit about what he talked about regarding uh, the time in his life where he was making dope and using meth and whether he was different or unique from the others that you spoke about? You already kind of alluded to the fact that he did talk about things that just were different, you said, from the others that you spoke to. But what can you share about um, his dope-making days, as he describes it? Well, and again, I don't really know what he was talking about when it came to this plant that he would, he mentioned the chemical sulfates. But just to kind of give you a little background on him, you know, Stephen was, um, when he was 13, he had an accident and he went through a period of life where he was suicidal. And a lot of his drug use was heavily influenced by his peers. So he mentioned as his peers changed, so did his involvement with drugs. So he first used meth at 18. He was with his best friend and their friends. And he talked about hanging out at these pool halls and using it in what he called, quote unquote, the underground. So there was a back room and the people that owned this hall knew that they were using meth. And so, you know, even though he was hesitant to try it the first time, he immediately loved it and very quickly, like, which is not unusual within the 33 people, progressed from using it you know, a few times to a few times a day, you know, all the way to where he's using it regularly. So one of the things that made Stephen an anomaly was when I met some of the other cooks, they were very, very detailed. They would tell you exactly what chemicals they were using and they would actually do like hand gestures where they would recreate how they would, you know, um, move the fat, the flasks or whatever, when they were cooking meth with Steven, when he was talking about this plant and the chemicals, it was all just very vague. And he kept saying, you know, I don't really remember. I don't really remember. And so that alone made him stand out differently. And I remember when we left his interview, my research assistant looked at me and she was like, what do you think of that one? 
And, you know, so we had a lot of questions about it, but there is something in the literature and we've seen it in Oklahoma also about people that bury chemicals to make something that's an amphetamine like substance. But, you know, this is where it gets really hard to distinguish what's what's accurately going on with what people may be perceiving, you know, and so there's a lot of questions about it, but. We actually tried to bury chemicals, do that method that people described here at the university with a chemistry professor years ago and weren't able to duplicate it. But again, it doesn't mean it's not happening. That's where the Internet comes in and people just read things and then do things. And who knows what anybody's smoking? I liked how it made me feel. All your negativity went away when you were on it. You were nothing but, hey, how are you doing today? And you always had a smile on your face because of the way you felt. Let's go into this idea of hot railing. Stephen talks about this method of preparing his meth for snorting. And he gets really detailed, in, uh, of course, in this portion of it, not as much detail <laughs> as right. in his cooking of dope. But uh, he goes in great detail in your book. He used the term hot railing. What does he mean by this? Well, and I agree with your your comment, which is when he described the using, I I didn't really question it at all. And I never really questioned it. I wasn't, I just had more certainty that he was a user for sure. And he very much likely was a dealer. But hot railing, he mentions you have a glass pipe and, you know, a lot of the pipes have a little ball on the bowl. And again, we've mentioned this before and I hate to even say it, but they call it a glass stick. And that seems to be the language people use in this world. And you break off the bulb at the end of it. You have a line of meth. You heat it in the pipe really hot. And then he talks about you're trying to heat it and it letting the drug melt while you're trying to inhale it. And so I even like asked him, are you inhaling it? Are you snorting it? And it's hot. Does it vaporize? You know, like I'm trying to get the details of what is, what is it that you're describing? And he says, you get it really hot. It basically becomes a liquid and then you snort it while it while it's hot and the vapors and liquid will kind of go in at the same time. And he actually like did it. He was like, I, I mean, I don't know what it would be like, you know, and he did it to try to show me. And he made a distinction between using it that way versus rolling it up in a ball and eating it or what he called passing the peace pipe, which would be just passing out a pipe. So this was the method that he preferred because it was the quickest, fastest you know, heaviest hitting high of the different manners that he used it. You're listening to episode 11 of the podcast, The 33, Methamphetamine, A Love Story, a book written by my guest, Dr. Rashi Shukla, and my co-host. She's a professor of criminal justice at the University of Central Oklahoma. I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, a professor of mass communications here at UCO. In today's episode, we are talking about Stephen, a 24-year-old former meth user and small-time dealer who was interviewed by Dr. Shukla for her book. Dr. Shukla, you discussed the culture, quote-unquote, and social networks, quote unquote, that are often associated in the world of meth. What can you add about the traits and, and the behaviors usually associated with these uh, social networks that you mentioned in the book? 
Well, thank you for bringing that up. You know, networks lie at the heart of this story and at the heart of drug-using behaviors. And, you know, there are people that use drugs alone, but there's a lot of uh, part of this lifestyle that's a very social part. And just engagement and involvement requires, necessitates links to other people. So you might have somebody that only has a few contacts with a few people in their network, all the way up to people. You think of it like a web, like a spider web. You know, the network can be very, very expansive to where you're dealing with people that are from other states or people that are coming through. And obviously, if you look at the global distribution of these drugs, the networks span countries. And if you go look at, for example, a United Nations report, you'll see a map with all of these lines that that kind of illustrate the the networks that exist. Um, at the lowest level, you have a few people that are mostly friends or friends of friends or acquaintances. At the higher levels, you have people that are dealing with people that are either out of state or out of the country. And this group of 33 included both. I'll talk about it in terms of webs of networks, and there are networks that are linked to networks. There are subcultures and there are subcultures within subcultures. For example, people that, you know, intravenously use are viewed as a different subculture versus those who maybe smoke it or snort it. Um, one thing that I did learn in this study, and it's interesting because one of my colleagues who teaches out in California, she actually wrote a book on social network analysis, you know, in criminal, criminal justice or criminology. And she actually pulled, like has a whole section of her book on this methodological approach that pulls from the meth book because the, the stories and the data that we talk about in the meth book helped illustrate to her how social networks operate in a criminal or drug group. And so that was, it was really cool to see this work um, impact and influence, you know, this, how do we learn about the networks and ties between people? But one of the things I just wanted to make sure people understand is networks can change over time, you know, and as somebody gets more immersed in a drug lifestyle, um, the networks shift. And that's where we talk about it as different chapters in the book. It goes from being, you know, something that you love to something that's risky to something that's dark. Those networks are constantly evolving and shifting as you're becoming deeper and deeper immersed into addiction or drug involvement. So would somebody who injects it intravenously avoid the snorter when using, or would you see both those subcultures come together and maybe in the same room? Do you have any research on that? Well, and I, I never remembered anybody who was an IV user talking about avoiding others, but I did have people that snorted it or smoked it talk about being separate from the IV users. So, I mean, the IV users were kind of in their own, like I said, subculture, a subculture where they were heavily immersed. I mean, the people that intravenously use meth were almost on a different level of use, even though they're all consuming regularly and heavily, there's something different when you inject a drug. And so that's, again, where Steven's a little different. Um, but, but I did have several people that talked about, you know, uh, the people that would go, and I think we talked about it in one of our previous episodes, the people would go in a back room and they would inject and then they would come back. So it is a different group. Um, one of the other things that made, made Stephen a little bit different was, and again, I'm not trying to question it. This is something that researchers or people that study things have to face, is he talks about at the very end of his interview about one time smoking a pound of meth over a week. 
And I don't know enough about meth even today to know if that's even possible. So what I was able to do is I integrated some of the questions that I had from Stephen's story into my other interviews. So I would ask the next person, hey, have you ever heard of this plant? Or have you ever heard of someone smoking a, a pound of meth by themselves? And, you know, inevitably when it came to the smoking of the pound of meth, I couldn't, I in my tiny sample of 33 couldn't find anyone to say that's possible. Again, whether Stephen did it, whether he thinks he did it, whether he perceives he did it, you know, that was what he said. But nobody else in my 33 could be like, that would be something that was possible. So methamphetamine is a very powerful stimulant drug, which is widely abused. Anywhere between 24 and 26 million people are abusing methamphetamine around the world. So let's go back to the point you made about the different highs that you get from intravenously versus snorting versus smoking. From your interviews, which is the best high? Well, is that a trick question? <laughs> well, I, I know that some obviously will snort it. Right. And they may start out that way or let's say they smoke it. Then they graduate to snorting and then they realize that intravenously may be a better high. So then they move on to this new subculture, as you described that the subcultures don't stay. I mean, they are right. fluid. Right. So I'm just curious, why would one jump to the others? Because the high is better. You know, it's interesting because when you look at, when you talk to people about their drug use, they have preferences and why, you know, I had some people in my sample who were like, I will never shoot up. That was like a Rubicon. That was a line that they weren't willing to cross. And obviously it was a line others crossed. And so what exactly explains why somebody would prefer this method to that method? You know, it's a very personal thing. And uh, we've talked about it early on in the podcast, the choice structuring properties or the ways we make decisions about things. So I, I think everybody who loved meth loved it, you know, and they loved it. I would say equally, it's just different. Some people are willing to do more physically invasive things to their bodies to get a certain immediate effect than maybe somebody who's not, you know, but I don't have a good answer for it. And the risk of intravenously yes. is a lot higher right. than snorting or smoking. Particularly, I might add, when you don't have um, access to clean needles. I sold it to were low lives. They weren't bums, but low lives. Stephen goes on to say Dr. Shukla that he sold $800 to about $100 of meth a day. Definitely a low-level dealer comp compared to everybody else that we've talked about who uh, dealt drugs. And uh, what can you add about his distribution, his level of distribution of meth and what have you learned from those that you've interviewed regarding distribution? You know, just like we talked about with the webs of, you know, the networks and the webs of networks, you know, there's always this, again, this concept I always go back to in my work, which is heterogeneity. There's always this diversity or dissimilarity when you look at anything. And Stephen was in my 33, one of the lowest level dealers. I mean, 80 to $100 a meth maybe sounded like a lot or felt like a lot to him, but there were people that wouldn't sell fewer than a few ounces or people that were manufacturing pounds at a time. So he was really in this 
small network. And one of the things that comes up about distribution is the importance of settings or places. So Stephen did a lot of his activities in pool halls. That's where he would be hanging out. That's where there would be smoking. He would talk about getting tweaked out of your mind and then playing pool, which aligned with him sitting at the bar, just drinking with us the day of the interview, which was again, totally unexpected, but I, who am I to judge? Um, you know, so his was definitely lower level. Some people sold in, you know, strip club, strip clubs. Some people stole, sold in bars. There were different levels. And the distribution of his was probably just this small group of people. Like he would said he would go to the South Side when they would run out of drugs to get it. That's different than, for example, one of my females who would go to across the border to Mexico and come back and get it. So Stephen's network was very small. Um, one thing that we know about networks in general is that, you know, the lower level dealers, usually the profit can be higher, but it's also a lot more risky. And that's where you see a lot more cut. And just recently in the news, you know, you think about the importance of these networks. We have recent um, federal convictions um, by the United States Department of Justice where we've seen uh, gang members basically trafficking methamphetamine and drugs while incarcerated in the Oklahoma prison system. And so, you know, one of the most recent um, convictions, there were 125 um, people from the Irish mob gang that were convicted, you know, and that were sentenced. And again, if these are people that are doing these activities and it's one of the ways that drugs have infiltrated these small, net, these rural communities, you know, they're already incarcerated. So all you can really do is incarcerate them longer. But if we can't stop drug dealing and, and trafficking from within the United States prison system, if we can't stop drugs from coming into prisons and, you know, being trafficked and distributed that way, we really don't have a chance of stopping this. Yes. And there was also a recent case where a security guard was also uh, allowing drugs right. into one of the uh, local prisons here in Oklahoma and was recently arrested. So they do need some help, definitely in the inside, right. in order for this to be accomplished. And we've seen, I uh, just want to add on there real quick, we've seen uh, drones drop, mm -hmm. you know, drugs yes. or supplies in the prisons. I remember I went on a tour of McAllister and at that time, the, the person who took us on the tour estimated that they confiscate a hundred, a hundred cell phones a day. Mm. Oklahoma department of corrections has only recently put in a new Intel analysis unit that specifically analyzes the confiscated cell phones of key people. So, I mean, as offenders have adapted, as the distribution networks have adapted, we on the response side, whoever that is, have had to adapt as well. You've just listened to episode 11 of the podcast, The 33, based on the book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story, written by my co-host and guest, Dr. Rashi Shukla, professor of criminal justice here at the University of Central Oklahoma. I'm your host and producer, Dr. David Nelson, Professor of Mass Communication here at UCO. In the next episode, we will talk specifically about Ava, another one of the 33 that Dr. Shukla interviewed for her book. Join us then, and of course, check out our podcast on Anchor FM, and we are also on Apple Podcast, BuzzFeed, and many other locations. Spotify. Spotify. We do have to remember that. Thank you again for joining us today for episode 11 and join us for episode 12. Thank you very much. Thank you.